Welcome to the Ember Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today as we gather together to wrestle with the ways that these ancient texts collide with our everyday lives as 21st century people. Using art, music, and the world around us as our guide, we hope to breathe new life into these texts and that our conversations spark as much curiosity and creativity for you as they do for us. Hi, I'm Jeremy Grafe. I lead Ember Faith Community here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Allison Spooner, and I'm the pastor at Faith Emmanuel and Hope Presbyterian Churches. Hi, I'm Kelsey Wallace, and I'm a PhD student in Bible and Cultures at Drew University. For this season of the podcast, we will be taking a look at the book of Ephesians, one of several New Testament texts attributed to the Apostle Paul. We will be talking about the uniqueness of the letter as a medium for scripture and what ancient letters like Ephesians might have to say to us about God's work in the world today. Thanks for tuning in. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. All right, there's a lot to dig into in this chapter. Um... Well, I think the first thing to point out is that the theme of unity, which has gone throughout the whole book so far, is really prominent here. Yeah, this is one of my very favorite parts of this book. These verses about there being one body and one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and all in all. I just think that's so great, <laughs> for lack yeah. of a more instructive word. It's profound. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know, it kind of makes your heart sing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's this, it's this beautiful reminder that for all the ways that we're different, there is something much bigger than all of that that draws us together, that has been inviting us from the off. And it's a spanning of space and time in a way. Like, it's it's always been one God and one baptism and one faith and one hope mm-hmm. yeah it um, kind of continues along those lines we were talking about you know unity and also diversity last week we also talked about how things apply to individuals within the body and then also the unity of the body and, and all of that kind of is encompassed with this repetition of one body one spirit we are all one despite all of the difference that is kind of highlighted through most of the book yeah i think it's important that the the oneness language doesn't elide the particularities of personal relationship with christ with of personal faithfulness and the kind of relationship that happens between people and community too yeah if anything I mean, the, the the opening of this chapter being a 
being begged to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I think that's such a, when we think about what allows people with very different worldviews and customs and ways of being, like it has to be something that's incredibly compelling to bring them together. And usually we only see that in major times of crisis. So we're recording this a couple days after September 11th, which of course we remember probably the last time that the country was very overtly united. And maybe it had different ideas about what it meant, but I think everybody um, was happy to say we're, we're Americans today, we, we live in the United States, which I think Paul's claim here about being called to something higher is different. Like it's not, it's not a rallying cry in a time of crisis. It's here's this choice to be part of something that's so much bigger and so much more about love than it is about anything else. And that's what makes it possible to be together when we don't agree or we think differently. Yeah. And also it's a response to a reality that's already present. Um, it's not It's not only that we're invited to make that choice, but that it's responding to something that's fundamentally and inherently part of the universe, um, our oneness in God and Christ. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that that oneness is talked about in terms of maturity hmm. in this part. Um in this chapter I mean he's saying until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to maturity in the measure of the full stature of Christ I mean I think in a lot of ways language about unity and diversity and oneness gets like passed off as this kind of immature way of thinking about people and as though it's naive. Yeah, as if it's naive. Um, so this is a totally different posture, too, to think about it as something that is maturity. That you grow up into something together. You grow up into Christ together. You grow up into oneness. You don't digress into oneness. Yeah. Well, I think, too, you know, some of that, when people talk about kind of the naivete around unity... I think some of that is um, like we're missing we're missing the thing that it's already done. Like it's already something that's been accomplished by God. But more than that, I think sometimes we mistrust any talk of unity because it can be used to silence people. Hmm. And I think the unity that that Paul's talking about has more to do with like something that's much more challenging and something that's must much more robust like how can we um how can we find some basic values and some basic touchstones when we really do think differently and experience the world so differently right that's something that takes a lot of kind of personal work but it also takes a lot of work within the community and oneness isn't sameness again i mean i know i've said that in previous weeks and i'll say it again i think to to interpret ephesians as saying you should be one as in you should be the same would be a mistake yeah Yeah. this isn't the borg collective (laughs) no but i think 
but it's also kind of not this melting pot either. Yeah. I mean, there's this idea when you t- when he starts talking about like the different parts of the body and different gifts, it's not that you all become the same part when you become the body. There's an integrated whole that's happening and the differences are actually needed for the body to work well and properly and healthily. But yeah, it's not saying anything about the sameness. Like it, there's actually something within the idea of the body as image of unity that actually speaks to diversity in, I think, a really powerful way. Yeah, I have a note here. I think it might have been something that we talked about when we, um, when we did this in our live setting at Ember on Sunday night. Um, about we are responsible to and for each other. When there's something that needs correcting, it is the responsibility and it's also the, uh, it's in the interest of all of the members of the body. It's not like, well, that's not my problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the same token, when we are, our choices that we make affect everyone. whether we necessarily see that or not. So um, thinking about how we behave in the world, not just uh, with our own, with ourselves in mind, but how we relate to everyone we come into contact with, uh, or even who we don't come into contact with. um, The interconnectedness of it all. Well, I think the fact that this chapter ends with an injunction to like speak the truth in love i think that's such a a powerful thing um we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger i mean it's not just handle it eventually it's handle it now and today before it festers and becomes entrenched bitterness and resentment and a simple misunderstanding can lead to something that's tragic. I think it's important also that it's not don't be angry. It's just be angry. Yeah. That that anger has a function and a cause and isn't, in my opinion, any kind of secondary emotion that hides other things. Anger ha- has a purpose and it tells you something about the way that the world and your community or yourself are interfacing um, and and can be a signifier that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do, it's be angry, but do not sin. Which to me is really profound because it's like, yes, you should be angry, but you still need to be mindful of how you express that. Yeah, um, you're still, when you express it, you're still addressing another beloved child of God. Right. Which doesn't mean you don't say anything about it because that is also just... Uh, disingenuous and unhelpful in a lot of ways. And there are plenty of scriptural references to God's wrath and anger. And as a spoiler alert, in most of those situations, it's because people are behaving in a way that's unjust, that's oppressive. That's the thing that has God angry. Yeah. So we have plenty of scriptural and godly models of righteous anger i'm kind of struck again by the number of childhood or children images in this book 
we've had Children of Wrath, um, and here we have speaking the truth in love and growing up into him who is the head, into Christ. Um, and growing up implies from childhood, growing to maturity. All this language is like pointing towards some kind of adulthood, if you will, to go with this metaphor. I, I don't know what to make of it, really, other than it's interesting that that we have childhood language here. I'm thinking of the Gospels where we get, you know, come to me as the children do. Jesus. Yeah, believe as children. Yeah. When I was I was um, studying meditation for a while, and one of the analogies that I read that was incredibly helpful um, when you start losing one-pointed focus, treat yourself the same way that you would treat a small beloved child that you're on a walk in a park with. So, for example, if you're walking in a park with a very small child, they're easily distracted and they're very excited and curious about things. So when the child goes to wander off the path, but you have somewhere to be, you don't stop and scream at the child. You gently bring them back online and in a loving way return them to the direction that you're trying to go I think the thing that's really occurring to me in this moment with all this child language it actually gives us some freedom to have some grace with ourselves because one of the things that we think about a lot in the modern world that was probably not true in Paul's context is this idea of childhood as being an innocent time of play and happiness and I think if we start looking at this existence as being something more childlike, like we can actually look at this like, oh, we're not done yet. We have, we have, we're still growing. We're still becoming who we will be. We're still working toward the calling that we're called to, which feels a lot better than, well, you believe in Jesus, so now this is the way you act. And if you don't, that really sucks. And I can't help but equate childhood with wonder in so many ways um and i think it's funny too that the the child image gets deployed both positively and negatively if you will in this text because right before the verse about growing up into christ there's also a verse about not being children any longer tossed to and from blown about by every wind of doctrine Mm -hmm. um it's, it's just interesting to me because i think so often we try to make metaphors very clean and do one thing and and this is giving us something different and something more complex and something I think that better speaks to the realities of what being human is like. Yeah. yeah. This is a really interesting conversation, I think, because um, I think when we encounter that child metaphor in the Gospels, it is often taken as, you know, um, a call to a simplistic faith. Or simple obedience. Or simple obedience. And, you know, the more we dig into it in this context, the more it's like, no, it is far. It's actually calling us to a more complex way of being. Yeah. Like on one hand, I mean, there is the thing about being a kid. There's like this sense of wonder and everything's new and everything's kind of exciting. And at the same time, a good bit of the time, we, we don't know how to act as children. I mean our parents, our teachers, everyone who's responsible for us, like they're they're teaching us how to be polite, how to have good hygiene, how to use the proper words. I mean, it seems like such a small thing, but 
I mean, that's that's all part of this. And the whole bit about us being responsible both for each other and to each other, like that that feels heavy to me. But if I'm looking at it like I'm still trying to learn this, I'm still in process, I'm I'm still not where I'm gonna be. I, I that takes a lot of weight off me, and I feel a lot less anxious about what does it mean to be a Christian. It's like, oh, you're right. I really don't entirely know what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure it out. I think it's also interesting, though, as you were talking about that the weight of that responsibility to and for each other. Um, there are also so many people that are are responsible for your support, you know, for, you know, it's interlocking. It's not one person that has to carry the load. Um, we're to build each other up. And I feel like that's a, like a literal thing. Like we're holding each other up and love doesn't puff up. Live builds up. Yes. And that works if you use the cornerstone or keystone kind of image mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. Every, I mean the, the keystone image, especially, I mean, there's, one particular block that's very special and is needed for that arch to work properly. AKA Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you need all the other ones to, to hold the thing up. Right. Can we talk about this uh, verse 20? This is the other thing that really jumped out at me. Um, This kind of exclamation. That is not the way you learned Christ. Um, And we were doing a little bit of digging around in the Greek before we started this episode and discovered or remembered that the word for learned in this verse is also the word that gets, um, it's the same root word that's used for the disciple, the word disciple. Right. This is not the way you were discipled (laughs) in Christ. Um, yeah. So it brings, it brings in to me images not just of like kind of sitting in a classroom like oh here are the 10 points about christ but um following um of discipline um not in a and growth i mean it works in the and growth same way that the childhood stuff does in some way it's complex it's not yeah memorization of 10 vital things about jesus right and i i think kind of going back to that child analogy with the disciples it's only in the last few years that I've really started seeing the disciples as, as living into the identity that they were called into. Like it wasn't, Jesus didn't call the 12 because they were especially holy, which is kind of the idea that I think I was carrying, which partially comes from church tradition. But the disciples were kind of blockheads in pretty much all accounts by like by my reckoning anyway i mean when you've got such a small group and they're nowhere to be found in your greatest hour of need and seem to argue at least enough that it was remarked on about who was the best and who got it right and they weren't there yet i mean in some ways that makes them so spectacularly human that Mm -hmm. it like brings me joy <laughs> yeah it's encouraging i feel like solidarity um with them in in a strange way yeah i mean that they were picked in the first place but the point is like it wasn't 
you 12, you seem to have your shit together. Yeah. It was more like, okay, you 12, with everything that's going on with you, we can work with this. Yeah. Come with me and let's see what happens. And they faithfully said yes and they faithfully showed up and they did their best. And that didn't always work out, but in the end, I think the reason why they're worth remembering and what's so important about them is that they're willing to live out that discipleship as something that, like, we're working on this. It's not, uh, like, I think we've turned it into a title, but it's not a title in the sense of, like, an honorific. It's like, yeah, you're you're on the journey. You're on the path. You're trying to work out your salvation with fear and trembling <laughs> you're a learner yeah yeah i think it's important too to like note the context of this that of that statement that is not the way you learned christ um it's not to live without sensitivity it's not to live um having abandoned oneself to licentiousness whatever we want to say that means <laughs> or to be greedy or to practice you know things that tear tear unity apart I mean there's something really great to me given the current climate in our country right now that this is here that this is part of our scripture that that it's saying these are not the ways right that you have been discipled these are not the ways yeah that you have learned to live like Christ well if that's the anti-example then the example is you're supposed to live in a way that recognizes that compassion is a directing value, that love is more important than anything else, that whatever you're doing, you make sure that it's not negatively impacting your community to such a degree that you're causing more harm based on like a momentary pleasure for yourself or a creature comfort or anything else. Like it, I think What's crazy about this is it was countercultural when it was written, and I don't know that it's ever gone out of style. It's never been anything other than countercultural. Which is a little d sad. <laughs> I wish we could, because uh, in some ways I feel like it's a sign that uh, we are, um, our culture has not. Uh, is not anywhere further along that road than it was 2000 years ago. But in other ways, I think, um, it, it's just helpful to, to be able to reckon with, um, the fact that things are not as they should be even now. Um, and yet we have this calling us to something better. Well, I don't know that Rome would have prided itself on being a place of the same kind of freedom that like we do in the United States. I don't know that we've gotten to a place yet where it's considered an unvarnished virtue to be greedy or unkind or uncaring. I, I just think that maybe we've lost our place a little bit. And if there is progress... We might have aspirations in our constitution and in our ethic about what it means to be a citizen of the United States. I just think we fall short. When I think about 
the kind of battles that we continue to have over LGBTQ inclusion, when we continue to struggle with um, so many injustice, so many injustices that fall along um, like racial lines or gender or gender lines. I think that's when we recognize that we're falling short and the people that are working for a more just and equitable society, um, they are not necessarily always doing it in love or in kindness, but yeah, I think when calls for justice are ignored, it gets harder and harder to be anything other than righteously angry. Well, it's not about retribution. It's about restoration and yeah. reconciliation. And those are fundamentally different moves. And so much harder. So, so much, much harder. harder. <laughs> Retribution's super easy. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Mm-hmm. This week, we invite you to think of the ways in which you might develop a reflex towards compassion and reconciliation, to speak the truth in love, to build up your community so that you might grow together. As we work through this text, we want to make sure that we are also in conversation with you, our listeners. So we invite you to reach out to us with questions, comments, and we'll be addressing these as we go on in subsequent podcasts. You can send your questions to emberfaithcommunity at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you. The Ember Podcast is a production of Ember Faith Community. Your hosts are Jeremy Grafe, Allison Spooner, and Kelsey Wallace. Music written and performed by Subaltern Project. All rights reserved, 2019.